From Bumble Australia and Shameless Media, this is Love Etc. When my love takes me home, it's one of five in a 30 mile zone. Foot like lead, nerves like steel, wild ride when it's taking away. How do you recover from an experience that completely changes your perspective on the world? How do you pick yourself up and heal when someone has tried to steal your agency, your freedom, and your sense of self too? Welcome to Love Etc., where your hosts, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, you're listening to Love Etc., a podcast by Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move. Today, we're talking about reclaiming your power after sexual assault. It's a heavy one, but a story that is so important to tell. We know that almost 2 million Australian adults have experienced at least one incident of sexual assault since the age of 15. Today, we're talking to two women, Tegan and Gabby, who have decided to speak in order to reclaim power over their own story. Just a quick note before we tell these stories, this episode will discuss issues pertaining to sexual assault and trauma and may be triggering for some listeners. To start the episode, we're talking to Tegan. Six years ago, she was casually seeing a guy who knocked on her door one evening as she tried to get some sleep before a big day of work. This is her story. So I was asleep. At the time that it happened, I was working at this very fancy hotel, which required me to get up very early um, to start. So I would usually be up about 4 a.m. And I was asleep. And I just remember hearing this, like, tapping at my window because my bed was right underneath it. And it was, there was no rhythm to it, but it was, like, persistent. And, like, I eventually came to, and then I could hear my name being called and... Outside my window was this guy that I'd been casually seeing for a number of months and asking to be let in because he'd been out. And I remember being mad because I he knew I had to start work early, but I still got up and I went to the front door and let him in. And he followed me into my bedroom. I remember getting straight back into bed and just telling him, like, I'm going to bed. Nothing's happening. You're going to sleep. I've got work, like that's that. And I rolled over and tried to go to sleep and, you know, was doing the smooth one line as like, all I thought about was coming to see you tonight and all that stuff that they do. And I just kind of rolled my eyes and I was like, yeah, that's great. I'm going to bed. And I let him kiss me once and then I went to sleep. Uh, the next thing I was, I don't know how long I was asleep for. It couldn't have been too long. Uh, but I was waking up to him trying to take off my pajamas. And at first, I didn't really realize what was happening. Um, I, you know, I started saying, like, no, like, you know, I've got to be up for work. I said no, and he just started laughing. And um, the more I said no and the more he laughed, the more I realized he, like, he wasn't listening to me. And eventually I realized that I would need to, to fight back, um, which just caused him to fight as well and he was much stronger than me and I just remember after a while just going completely numb and just like that was that I, I kind of checked out and I was numb 
And as soon as it was over, I just got out of that room and he rolled over and fell asleep and I got up and collected everything I needed from that room and got in the shower and just scrubbed. And I like, I must've scratched myself. I don't know, but I remember scrubbing and there was blood and I was just numb to the situation. And I got ready and I went to work and tried to bury it. And yeah, that's what happened. How did you process that event in the 24 hours after it happened? What did you tell yourself about it? I didn't process it. Not, not one bit. I, 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 the only time I kind of stopped to think I I got to work and I got changed and just went, I can't have him like at, at my house when I get home. Like I can't have that. And I sent him a text message just telling him, like, get out of my house. I don't want you there when I get home and don't call me. Like, that's that. And I went to work and I, like, served customers and I trained new staff and just completely ignored what had happened and went home and he wasn't there and changed my entire room around and, like, bought new bed sheets so that the room seemed different, like, to trick myself that it hadn't happened in that room. And yeah, I managed to just, I just didn't think about it. I just buried the whole thing and that worked for a few weeks. And then, then I found out I was pregnant. And so I couldn't really ignore it when that happened. I still hadn't reached out to anyone at this point. Like no one had known what had happened. But when I thought about like being pregnant and bringing a, like having a baby, I was just like, you know, what do I, like, what do I tell people about how I got pregnant? Do I, do I, like, that means I have to talk to him again. I don't want anything to do with him. So I, like, I had to start thinking about it then, but I still didn't tell anyone what had happened. And at the end, I decided to have an abortion. So it was like, I don't have to contact him. He has no right to know the decision I've made here. It's, he lost that right when he didn't listen to me say no. And so yeah, and then after the abortion happened, I like I only told one friend I was having an abortion. And I lied to her about how I got pregnant and told her it was someone else. So that was like an opportunity where I could have reached out to someone, but I didn't. And then once that was done, I just buried it all again and didn't deal with it until I finally started having major anxiety and and just went, well, I, I need help and went to see a psychologist and then it was like, that was when I really started to unpack and process what had happened. And that was years later, like years later. So was the psychologist the first person in your life who heard the full story of what actually happened that night? Yeah, he was. Yeah, which it was, yeah, originally he was a free counsellor that my uni had on, on campus. And I originally went in because I was like, struggling being on campus and I had so much, so much anxiety about being on campus and being in these crowds and I'd never had that before and so I originally went to see him because I was like I've never like had these issues before and I'm having panic attacks and that's never happened and you know at first I was like it can't just be like stress of assignments and things like that and then yeah when we really broke it down and I was like okay well yeah this happened and he's like well we might need to explore that and um then he was the first person I told the whole story to and How do you think in those ensuing sort of months and years, did it change your relationship with your body, if at all? Massively. I was very confident sexually before it happened. I was on so many online dating sites and 
would go on dates a lot and I was one that was quite confident having sex with new people and after that I found myself if I was going to be having sex or like hanging out with someone in that way it was someone that I've been with before and so I like I trusted them and I knew them and they hadn't hurt me so I kind of found myself turning to people that I'd I'd been with before which isn't always a great idea but yeah since then that's where I found myself and I'll go on a date with someone new but it's it doesn't get far I haven't been able to quite take that step yet so to clarify as far as dating and sex goes with new people that changed really drastically in the wake of being sexually assaulted absolutely and um like during the I still have trouble finding a word for it I know it's I find it hard saying rape, but, you know, sexual assault, the language is a lot. But um, he used my sexuality against me because I was confident and I did enjoy and was very articulate about how I liked having sex. And so he said phrases like, you know, like I thought you liked it rough and like things like that. So he used a lot of my sexuality against me. So it was very hard to kind of be able to go back to how I was before. Was it difficult for you to trust men? Like how do you learn to trust people again after something like this happens? It wasn't like, it's not even just like trusting men, it's trusting the people that I've let into my life. When that happened, I had a massive group of friends and now I very much have a handful. Like I only have the closest of people around me. Whereas back then, I was like always going out with like a group of friends from work and that was like a constant thing. And there was always these big groups of people that I was a part of. And then slowly I started to pull away from those groups and was very careful about who I I let in close. And that's something that like I struggle making new friends now because I can have that kind of like, I can be friendly at work or I can be friendly at uni, but it takes a lot more to let them closer into my life. So it's not even just a trusting men or sexual partners. It's just trusting people in general. Cause I, I thought I was a good judge of character and yet I let that person into my house and that happened. And, you know, I had a friend when I was like fresh 18, tell me that I was too nice. And one day that would come back and bite me. And that's always something that I've thought about in the wake of what happened. Cause I was like, I could have just told him to go home. And like, this is something that I've talked to my psychologist a lot is I will find excuses for what I did, like letting them in. Like I should have just said this. I should have told him, no, I should have told him to go away. Like I shouldn't have let him into my house. It's a, it's a hard thing to say. Like I'm victim blaming myself when I know I should be putting the blame on him. You touched on earlier, Tegan, that you've always been someone who's really enjoyed sex and been really articulate with how you enjoy it. Did the sexual assaults impinge your experience of sex? Did you ever have traumatic flashbacks while you were sleeping with new partners? Yeah, it definitely changed. I tried to, like, I'd be very aware of what I was doing sexually And I'd have like these intrusive thoughts pop up, like, you know, that's like this, or if they, they do this, that's happening again. So like those thoughts would definitely come up, but it was, I somehow managed to to push it aside, but there has been times where it's led to a panic attack 
during sex, which isn't exactly a great experience to go through generally, but then add, you know, the fact that you're with someone in that way and you're having a panic attack. And I was lucky that that person was someone who understood mental health and what was happening. So he was able to to very much help me get through that. But yeah, so there's definitely been moments and it's definitely changed how I am. Like I don't have, I don't have sex very often anymore. Um, but even when I do decide to have sex, I'm very careful about who it is. Lots of survivors talk about the fact that the healing process can take years to work through. Do you feel like you're healing now? Do you think you'll ever be fully healed? What is your relationship with healing? It's an ongoing process for me and it's I I buried it for so long. So then it was like when we finally started talking about it, it was just like I don't know, like a dam bursting, like everything came out. And so we had to find ways to to work through it all and I get really frustrated with myself and I can be very unkind to myself because I I really hate how long it's held so much power over me and I'll I'll be doing okay and I'll feel like I'll get to the point where I don't need to see my psychologist every other week like I can see him once a month or once every 6 weeks and then a trigger can happen or um I find it really difficult around like anniversary dates especially because my birthday is very much tied into it so a time when I should be <laughs> so happy and like having different things happening in the back of my mind, I've always got, well, hey, this is what happened around your birthday. But I'm lucky that I have a fantastic psychologist and we've found ways to deal with it. Well, like w- ways to, to work through it when I come, come to those moments, but it is ongoing. How do you mend your relationship with sex, your sexuality and sexual expression? Do you think it's possible to fully mend? like with the right person it will be I just haven't quite got to that person yet and it's letting that person in when I find that person so I think that's very much something that I'll get like I'll be able to do but it's just it's a it's a process and I'm not quite there yet if anyone is listening to this and we can guarantee there will be who has gone through something similar to what you did what would you want that woman or man to know how important it is to speak to the people around you. It's hard. It's it's so hard to be vulnerable with the people in your life after you've been hurt when you've been so vulnerable with someone before. But I let myself be so isolated in that situation and it's an isolation I don't want to feel again. Now, years later that I have been able to open up and to talk to the people that I have in my life. And I know that if I'd spoken to them years ago, they would have rallied around me like they do now. And that I think that would have helped the healing process just be a little bit faster. Like I'm lucky to have them around me now as well. Speak to someone. Speaking to a psychologist was definitely the easiest first option for me because it was someone who was so removed from my life. He didn't know who I was when I walked into that door. He didn't know who the person was. And I could just sit and say what had happened. Being in that space where it was this new person who didn't know where I'd come from made it easier to be able to open up and talk about what happened. Reach out to someone because it will help and it will hurt, but it will help. Coming up after the break, we meet Gabby and then chat to a psychologist about all the ways you can help someone in their life who may be struggling with trauma. But first, it's time for a Bumble break. 
Mish, according to Bubble's own research, 75% of women and 64% of men say looking at their phone is the first thing they do after waking up. I know, and I'm absolutely one of them. Bumble knows that sometimes having our heads buried in our phones isn't the most productive use of our time or the best way to care for our minds. That's why Bumble is really proud of their snooze function on the Bumble app. Snooze is a feature that allows you to pause activity on Bumble while keeping your connections. Bumble encourages all its users to go offline so you can come back to their community a healthier, more balanced person whenever you may be ready. We often become so fixated on the external world that we forget to take care of the internal one. Knowing that 60% of young women say social media overwhelmingly influences their mood, Bumble is here to remind you that it's completely acceptable to take a time out to nurture yourself. Download Bumble today and make the first move. One app, three modes, one mission. We'd now like to introduce you to Gabby. Her story starts one evening as she enjoyed her very first night out in a nightclub. I was 18, freshly just turned 18. Went out two weeks after I turned 18 with a group of mates from school. Been friends with some of them for a very long time, numerous years. Everything was fine, you know, I'd never been to a nightclub before or anything like that. I just finished my HSE trials. You know, one thing led to another and um, one of the boys that I was with needed a place to stay which was absolutely fine. He had been to my house before, so he was right to come over and that was when he took advantage of me and raped me um, at my at my house there when I was fresh 18. So, yeah. How did you process it in, you know, the hours after it happened? Like what did you tell yourself about it straight away? That it didn't happen and that it just... It just, it just didn't happen. I couldn't control myself, couldn't sleep, couldn't get out of my head whatsoever. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't process it for a, for a very, very long time. I didn't tell anyone for months. So, and you know, five years on, still processing it. What did you tell yourself about what happened that night? Did you tell yourself that it was a bad sexual experience? Did you tell yourself that nothing at all happened between the two of you? How did you kind of process it within yourself if you didn't? confide in anyone around you? I thought it was my fault and I thought that um, I kept questioning whether I whether I, I did in fact say yes and I was like no I didn't I didn't want it so if you know that that's enough clarity in itself to say that that wasn't supposed to happen it shouldn't have happened but unfortunately when that experience happens with someone who has quite a reputation at a school I knew that even if I said something to someone, it would have been like, yeah, radio, you've slept with someone that slept with a thousand other people and you're just embarrassed. So that added another complexity into it. So I went back and forth, whether it was my fault or not, and whether it happened and what happened. And it was very, very hazy for a very, very long time. You just said it took you a few months to even tell anyone else about it. What changed and who did you decide to tell? I wasn't coping and cracks were starting to show and I, I couldn't keep putting on a face anymore. I think the first person I told was a school counsellor just to actually just say the words out loud and um, not to my knowledge that then, of course, it would turn into something bigger and police would have to be involved in that type of thing, you know, rather than just telling a parent. So I got them to call my mum and they told her because I couldn't do it. And then... 
told her in depth and then I got her to tell the rest of my dad and my sister because I just couldn't keep saying the words over and over again. How long after the actual event did all of this take place? Was it a few weeks or a few months? No, it was a couple of months. So aside from all of the drama that kind of unfurled into your life after telling that school counsellor, how did this immediately change your relationship with your own body? I think I went through a stage when I was um, afterwards, I was very confused. And like I said, I kept trying to process whether it had actually happened or not, and whether it was my fault. And I think I went through a stage of trying to get my body back and trying to seek control over it. And unfortunately, making some decisions that I, I don't regret, but I wish I'd just gone down a different path because you've just had something taken away from you and you're just trying to get it back and just trying to be in control again. You know, I was I was single. I'd been in a long-term relationship for three years prior and had just left that partner. I was very confused. I just turned 18. That had just happened and I just made some decisions I wish I hadn't have, but no one tells you how to process these things. It was a rushed experience to dating very quickly. It wasn't wasn't great and I wasn't in the right headspace and silly mistakes, but that's just what happens when you're 18, I guess. What about your experience of intimacy in the wake of being sexually assaulted? I think a lot of sexual assault survivors will say that it's kind of difficult to find enjoyment in sex or to have sex that is free from fear. Was that something that you experienced? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was my first. I had had a partner, I'd had another sexual experience and then that was my third. And you're scared because you just, the flashbacks happen and they happen when you don't want them to. And that's not your other per, the other person's fault. And that's not your fault. And you, you can't always control yourself then. So, you know, having partners after that and even just having sexual partners after that it's it's really complicated you know do you say something do you tell them what you've just been through six months prior and that you're not coping with it but you still want to enjoy yourself it's complicated and there's no right answer and you say you say something and you don't know how they're going to respond either and that's not on them is there an element too of I don't know who to trust or I Hugely in this scenario. Yes, absolutely. You, you don't know who to trust because people give you the look of, they give you that cancer look. They give you that you've got a terminal illness, there's something wrong with you, you're not perfect anymore. And then that can either be, you know, a sorrow look or that can be a disgusted look of what were you wearing, you were used, was it, was it really all his fault, that type of thing. And then people don't want to do anything with that, do you know what I mean? They, they stop right there. All right, no worries. We won't go any further. Oh, no, that's not what I was saying. I was just saying, this is my history and I just want you to be aware, you know, it would be the same if I ever had an, an STI. I would still tell them before we did anything, you know, because I don't know. So you just don't know what they're going to do and how you're going to react to how they're going to react. You are now in a healthy and loving relationship with your partner. What was it like trusting him in the early days of your relationship and did it take you very long to tell him of your background? I sillily told him on our first date, which we didn't we didn't even do anything on our first date. I felt at that point I felt guilty and that it was a secret and that if if I was to involve anyone into that area of my life, it was my responsibility to tell them and to inform them. So I told him immediately and 
he just felt angry straight away and very upset for me, which is wonderful. But yeah, you just don't know who to trust. And you, you, you have your gut instinct and you think to trust people. And fortunately, it ended up so well and so amazing. But it doesn't mean that there weren't times that it didn't end so great. A lot of sexual assault survivors speak about a healing process that takes years to work through. I mean, you said that at the start of our chat, it is something that you're still working through, you know, five years on. How do you feel like you are healing now? Do you feel like you'll ever be fully healed from what happened? No, I don't think you can be. I don't think you're ever like that. And I think if you get to a point where you are in a great relationship, married, you've been together for years, there'll still come a point where you'll possibly have children. And whether it's you, whether you have a boy or a girl, you're going to shape the way that you teach them about consent and about sex and those types of things. Whether you tell anyone or not, and whether you're vocal about it, you still don't want it to happen to anyone else. So you're always going to hold that close to your heart that you hope that this doesn't happen. And it did happen. And it changes the way that you look at things. It's a really interesting conversation because I think when we talk about rape and sexual assault, the dialogue is so often, oh, talk to your daughters, talk to your daughters. But as you just said then, this is a conversation parents need to be having with their sons. Say you and your partner do have a baby boy one day. What would you want to raise him to be like in the area of consent? What are the kinds of conversations you would be having with him as a victim and as a survivor of sexual assault? I'm sure that when that day comes, it might be very different and I'm sure that I might feel different. And I haven't spoken to my partner about this, but I've always thought that no matter what I had girl or boy, that I would tell them and I would pick my moment and I would tell them. And that's not to that's not to throw it into anyone's faces, but I just think if you put a face to a to an incident, it becomes more real. It's not just someone on the news that that happened to them and, you know, oh, yeah, I'm sure there's someone's daughter, blah, blah, blah. No, this happened to your mum and these are the steps that you're going to take because that's not going to happen to you and that you're not going to do that to someone else. How have you managed over the last couple of years to mend your relationship with your sexuality and your sexual expression? Slowly <laughs> and still working on it. Um yeah, it's uh, it's not easy, and um, and it's funny because sex gets thrown around in conversation all the time, whether it's about jokes or kinkiness or anything like that. And you you want to be a part of those conversations, but there's just something that's holding you back. But I just think I just need to be comfortable in whatever way. And luckily, I have a comfortable partner. You know, a wonderful partner that makes me feel so comfortable. But that doesn't mean that there's not moments where I flash back and things need to stop and it's not easy anymore and that's five years on and that's that happens not often not often at all but it does happen and that's not fair on on him or me I think I just have to not push myself as well as in those conversations as well if I'm uncomfortable then I just don't say anything there's a difference between sex and then having making love with someone now you know there always will be for me What about things like therapy? Have you sought out psychologists or psychological help as you've been healing and what kind of role has that kind of stuff played in your life? I didn't for a very, very long time. Only recently at the end of last year, I needed help and that unfortunately came to a halt as COVID hit due to financially not being able to keep going 
and it's just it's just so expensive for the little time that I was going it really helped because the number one thing that I learned was that it sucks and that's okay to say that it sucks and I don't need to keep beating myself up and having to be strong and that I actually just need to sit with it and just absorb that and be angry and be upset and be wanting to know why it happened and that's helped. It doesn't mean that I don't still sit with these emotions though and question it all the time, but at least I'm starting. How do you feel towards him now? So angry. (laughs) And it's so funny because I've seen him speckles throughout my life, whether it was at a pub or something like that. And so angry. And then I get angry at myself that, you know, he's still out and he's still walking around and his life didn't change at all. And whether I could have just done more, but I just couldn't do it. Just angry. You just, I I don't get upset anymore. I just, I know it sounds like I'm upset, but um, it just shouldn't happen to anyone. If anyone is listening to this right now who has gone through something similar to what you did, and we know for a fact that there will be because so many women experience this in silence, what would you want those women to know? That it's okay to be silent if you want to. You don't have to be brave. I'm... I'm here and I'm willing to talk because if someone doesn't stand up, then it's never gonna, it's never gonna change. And yes, people might be listening and thinking, well, you know, you should have gone to the police then. And I did, and I did go through that path and I did my full statement and I was there for hours on end going back and forth, back and forth on every detail that you can possibly imagine that I had to remember. And I still got to the point where they were like, well, you know, there's not a lot that we can do from here unless you go and speak to him and wear a wire and get a get a confession. And to put some a victim, you know, in that situation where you ask that question, how do I feel about him now and I crumble, the system has to change and until I don't know what to do, but until we do something, then everyone's just gonna sit in silence. Gabby, how is life now? Wonderful. <laughs> It's, it's lovely. I've been with my partner for over four years and we've just moved into our new house that we've been building for two years. So it's, it's, it's wonderful, but that doesn't mean that, you know, there isn't pain and I'm, I'm fine and things are rose-coloured glasses all good, but it, I'm very lucky and it's very nice. finish today's episode we wanted to chat to a psychologist who can speak to the many ways survivors of sexual trauma can reclaim their power and take back control of their life so i picked up the phone and called clinical psychologist and president of the australian psychological association tamara cavanagh the first thing i asked her was just how horrendously common an experience like this one is Really sadly, I think it's assumed that it's not that common, but I think the stats rates on it are, you know, actually really quite scary. So it's about 38% of women who have reported that it's sometime in their lifetime. Um, That's women and 9% of men that they've been sexually assaulted in some way by the time they're 18. So really scary stats. That's, you know, getting close to that 50-50 mark. Do you think the reason that there's often such a big gap between that 38% number and the number of people that report their assault is that so many people don't realise for so long that that's what's happened, that they kind of do put it down to a bad sexual experience? Absolutely. I mean, the majority of sexual assaults are people we know. 
Um, and so they're people that we've spent time with and I think that then brings about a confusion over, you know, what actually happened and is this an interpretation I'm making or is did that actually happen and we get confused and we don't want to report something that we're not sure about. So it's all of those elements that I think play a little bit of a role here in reporting as well as the fear of what would happen if we make an allegation. Yeah. Some women we did speak to for the podcast and in research for this episode reported that they were grappling with post-traumatic stress disorder in the aftermath of sexual trauma and sexual assaults. What are the telltale signs that someone might be grappling with PTSD if they're not sure why they might be reacting in certain ways in the aftermath? Nightmares are a really common sign of PTSD. Uh, Avoidance of certain situations, any reminders, anything that makes you think about the trauma itself, that can actually be a real indication that something more and deeper is going on here. And a real startle response, so hypervigilance to what we call threat. So where you're a little bit overreacting when you hear a noise or a loud bang or something like that. There's also um, avoidance of the memory. So a lot of people, I mean, you can understand why people don't want to think about these things, but certainly that real fear response and panic attacks when any reminder or intrusion comes in, they're the things that we're really looking for. If someone's listening to this who may have experienced something like this but actually haven't taken any steps to sort of deal with it because they have tried to push it down like so many people do, what are the basic first steps that someone can take to kind of reclaim their power and control of their lives? Yeah, so everyone responds differently. Uh, So that's probably the first thing. I'll refer to people as survivors, but it's whatever um, term you feel comfortable with. So the big thing that I want them to know is that it's about making small decisions for yourself and really just trying to take step by step, put in a little bit of control around the things that you can. So, you know, obviously at the moment it happens, it's about your safety, being around the people you feel comfortable being around um, and moving through the process. Uh, You can also contact each state and territory has a specific service for this and it's good to go to the services who know and have experience dealing with sexual assault and, and know the process around making reports and things like that. But it's really just about being around people who you feel safe and doing what you need, but also knowing that your emotions can change. You can go from guilt, self blame, denial, fear, all in the same day and that you won't necessarily be in a single emotion for any one moment, that you can actually keep oscillating between all these different ways of feeling and that all of that is really, really normal. So allowing yourself to feel those emotions is part of what I think can be really helpful is to just go, this will pass, but I'm going to move from one to the other. Given those stats you gave us at the very top of this chat, is so many people listening to this will therefore know somebody who's been through something like this, whether it be a family member or a friend. What can friends and family do to help someone who has survived sexual assault or trauma? Look, as a family member, I think it's incredibly hard. You're wanting to help this person and Mm. um, don't necessarily know what to do. So the first thing I would say is absolutely 100% believe what you're hearing. So we know that false reports are incredibly low and very infrequent. So in all likelihood, this person is 100% telling you exactly what happened. So believe them, remain calm, and just be available. So you don't have to get everything right. They just really need your support and to be there. 
Um, and of course, maintain their confidentiality. They may not be ready to tell other people. They may not be ready to make a report yet. So it's about you just being there with them through the whole process and just knowing that whatever decision they make, that you will be supporting them through that. The other sort of recommendations I would say to people is if you're going to give them a hug or if you want to comfort them physically, just ask first because that might be a bit of a trigger. Don't be afraid yourself that if you're what you've got questions to go and ring some of the helplines because they will also be able to support you through that. Uh, and then just listen, give them an opportunity to talk, let them go through it and just let them know that they are actually safe and that there is advice and places that they can go to get support and that you will help them through their process and be their advocate. One thing that was interesting when we were talking to one of the women we interviewed on the show, Gab, she was saying that she struggled after a little bit to access services like counselling and, you know, meetings with a psychologist because it just got a bit too expensive. And I do feel like there's a lot of myths with regards to how expensive access to psychology sessions are. Can you break down a little bit for anyone listening to this who may want to go see a psychologist? How can they do it if they feel like it's just all too expensive? It's all too hard. I can't afford it. Absolutely. So, look, a lot of the actual services that um, that you can phone up are often very free. So a lot of the state and territory services will actually have no costs associated with them. There's also a victims of crime service that will actually fund your sessions if you need to. Your third option is if you don't want to go through those services, you can actually go to your GP and they can create a mental health care plan for you, which usually means that there's a large rebate provided by the government for sessions. So, you know, there's all these different options and don't be afraid to call a psychologist and talk through how you can go about funding your sessions because you'll find that there is a lot more support out there and that the initial cost that gets quoted doesn't always go through all the rebates and all the different options for how to fund that. So, um, absolutely, go talk to the services. There is a lot of free help out there. What would you say to a young woman or man listening to this who feels that they may never recover? after a sexual assault? Yeah, I think that's a commonly held um, belief that people have that this is something that's happened to me and I'll be permanently impacted. And to some extent, yes, you, you are, you've had a really huge experience. This is something that may well change the way you see the world, but you don't have to be affected day in, day out, every day in everything that you do. So um, trauma survivors and survivors of sexual assault have all said comments like, it might seem impossible now, but you will get better. You will get through this. There will be a time in your life when you will trust intimacy again, that you know you will actually feel like you can go about doing your regular routine and activities without all of this playing in your mind. So it just sort of forms part of your life experiences and part of your character. So I would say, you know, don't feel like what, whatever you're feeling today is where you will be forever. It is a process that you will move through and it's so individual. You've been listening to Love Etc., a production from Shameless Media. To support the show, please click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. Sign up to Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move towards friendship, professional and romantic relationships. We'll be back in your ears next Friday.